Good morning, church. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 14 through 16. Um, my name is John Menton. I'm here with my wife, Naomi. Uh, actually, she's not sitting here. At the <laughs> she disappeared. Um, she's taking the kids, um, the little ones out. Um, and some of our children, uh, like Anna said, uh, two of our teenagers, the older girls at home, sick because of uh, their tent actually got soaked, totally soaked. All their bedding, all their clothes. And so um, you know, they're not feeling too well this morning. So while you're turning, into your Bible, uh, turning in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, uh, I want to just say thank you to Honor for inviting us. Uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning. I met Honor way back at the first border Easter camp that I ever went to. But I don't think I made a really good impression on Honor because he says he doesn't remember that. <laughs> but uh, we met again in 2011, and we've been friends ever since. C.S. Lewis said that friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, What? You too? I, I thought I was the only one. But Honor and I share a few loves. And we both believe and know to be absolutely true that Liverpool is the greatest football club ever, full stop. And Honor and I love smoking, meat that is, yeah, meat, slow cooked, pulled pork, brisket. Have any of you seen that crazy red contraption that he's got now? Wow. <laughs> but there's something else, something far more important that unites us. And that is the gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Honor loves the gospel. He knows Jesus, and that is the best thing about him. That's the best thing about honor. And that is why that our family can come here this morning, and we, we feel like we're part of this family, because the gospel is what unites us. So let's go to God's word this morning in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church and that you've brought us together in the name of Jesus this morning. We thank you for your precious word and we ask that you would speak to us by it. We ask that by the working of your Holy Spirit here with us, present with us, that you would bring us to a greater realization of Jesus, the great high priest, that you would lead us to walk closer with him, to love him more deeply and to obey him more fully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you feel the world is broken? That something just isn't right here. It's inescapable, isn't it? You can avoid watching the news, but no matter where you go, no matter where you go, it's, it's just everywhere. War, terrorism, Corruption in government, 
slavery, trafficking, exploitation of, of women and children, abortion, racism, earthquakes, tsunamis, and persecution. Just nine days ago, nine Christians were killed in Kenya for refusing to renounce Christ. We could go on and on listing all the terrible things that are happening in the world. And it's not just going on out there. It's around us. It's near to us. There are people close to us that are dealing with sickness, with pain and disease. We have lost family. We have lost friends. Our relationships are are often difficult. Many of them are, are broken. We have been wounded by what people have said and what people have done. People we have trusted who have betrayed us. Brokenness. It's all around us, but it's also within us. The battle and failures that we have with sin, depression, anxiety, doubt, and fear. Now, I'm not trying to be overly pessimistic this morning. I'm not trying to give you the impression that that life is completely miserable. It's not. With all that's going wrong, there's so much that still goes so right. But we all know deep down, we know deep down that something is wrong here. Even the best things are tainted. No matter how we would like to paint it, the true story is all things are not merry and bright. But this is where, this is exactly where the light and the hope of the gospel breaks in. The good news that there is a God who cares about our plight. God is not distant, he's not way up there, and he's not cold and indifferent. No, he is a God who cares. He is a God who has entered into this mess, a God who entered into our world. Jesus Christ took on human flesh, died on a cross, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and he extends good news that in the midst of a world that's full of brokenness, There is a Savior who is making all things new. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? That yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That the way things are now are not the way things, how how they will always be. That Christ who came as a baby, that died in the place of his people, will one day return to consummate his kingdom. And when he does, he will wipe away every tear. No more death, no more mourning, no more sadness, no more pain. And as we anticipate that day, no matter how bad everything gets out there, no matter how bad everything gets in here, we have a Savior who's faithful and worthy of our trust. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. This letter was first received by a congregation, a church, who have heard this good news Of Jesus, and they've confessed, Yes, we believe it to be true. And they've begun to follow after Jesus. But as they journey along that narrow road, there is brokenness all around that is pressing in on them. Following Jesus wasn't easy for these early believers, it came with a great cost. There was persecution, there was trials and temptation. Many lost friends, they lost families, their jobs, they lost possessions. For some of them, that cost seemed far too great. They were thinking, is it really worth it? Is Jesus really worth it? They were tempted to give up, to turn back. But the author of Hebrews warns them, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go back. In chapter 3, 
He uses the example of the Exodus generation. You guys have just gone through the book of Exodus, right? Yeah, he says, Don't be like those who were led out of Egypt, who were pressing on to God's promised rest, but turned back in unbelief. Don't be like them. Why? Because there is a rest that is kept and that is sure for all of God's people because it was bought with the blood of the Savior who will never fail. He will never fail. Keep trusting Him. Keep trusting Him all the way home. Have you ever been tempted to give up? Have you considered turning your back on Jesus? As we too press towards that final rest, we face the pressures of, of life. And we face the attractiveness of sin. We need help. We need help. In our passage this morning, we find the help that we need. God's word calls us this morning to hold fast and to draw near to Jesus, who is both able and willing to help us. He's able and willing to help us. So the first thing we see here in our text this morning, that Jesus, in Jesus, we have a great high priest who effectively intercedes for us, who effectively stands in the gap, who effectively represents us before God. Look again at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Jesus is our great high priest. Uh, What's that about? If you've read through the Old Testament, books like Exodus and Leviticus, you'll be familiar with this idea of a high priest. That in Israel, God appointed a man to represent the people before himself. The high priest was to pray for the people, to teach them about God, to help them to love God and obey Him, to offer sacrifices to God. Sacrifices for what? Sin. Sacrifices for sin. So there's a holy God. We've just sung about this holy God. There's this great and awesome holy God, and there is sin. There is a problem. This sin has created a divide between God and people. So God chose and appointed a human priest to go between so that he could be near his people. So these Hebrew believers, they could never imagine drawing near to God on their own. They knew very well that approaching their holy God required a mediator, a representative who would offer sacrifices, who would intercede for them. They knew that only the high priest could enter that very holy place to do that, to offer those sacrifices. But Jesus is not just a high priest. What does the verse say in verse 14? Jesus is a great, he's a great high priest. How is he great? Because the high priest in the Old Old Testament was only allowed just once a year and only for a few minutes to go past that veil that blocked the way to the most holy place, the place where God's presence was most intense. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was ripped from top to bottom. It was a sign that God is reaching down to us, not us reaching up to him. And Jesus' atoning death didn't just do only that. It did even more. The verse says that he passed through the heavens. 
he passed through the heavens. He ripped open the skies. He didn't just, he didn't just minister behind a veil in a tent in a, or in a tabernacle. He's not just going before that mercy seat. Hebrews 9.24 tells us that these things were just, they were just metaphors for the reality that is in heaven. Jesus is in the very presence of God before the Father. He is seated at his right hand. The Old Testament priests and sacrifices were mere, a mere shadow of the substance, of the reality. All of it pointed forward to something greater, someone perfect, someone complete. Jesus is that substance. He is the great. He is the final. He is the ultimate high priest who opened the way for us into the presence of God. He's not a metaphor for something higher. He is the fulfillment. We're not waiting for someone greater. This means that there's no other mediator between God and man. No priests, no ancestors. It's Jesus alone. Jesus is the real high priest, the Son of God, who brings us to the Father. The second thing that we see here about Jesus is that he's a high priest who fully sympathizes with us. He is a great high priest who fully sympathizes with us. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is not a high priest up there in the sky. He's not out of touch with our reality. He's not far removed that he can't understand what we are going through. Hebrews 2.17 says that, He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus did not live a sheltered life. He experienced the broken world just as we do. He was tested and tempted in every way that we are. Chapter 3 of Hebrews says that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. That's us. The Son of God knows what it's like to be a child. He knows what it's like to be a teenager. He knows what it's like to be an adult. He knows like, what it's like to be poor, to be hungry, to have no home. He knows what it's like to be popular one day and crucified the next. He didn't shield himself from experiences that make us lose heart and want to throw in the towel. Every temptation that you face, he's already faced, but with one massive difference. When you have been tempted and given in, Jesus never, ever gave in. And nor could he as the Son of God, as the God-man. And that is why he is able to help us, to help you and to help me. Now you might be saying, just, just hang on one second there. If Jesus never sinned and he couldn't sin, then he doesn't possibly know what my temptation is like. How can he possibly know what it's like for me? Well, C.S. Lewis has a response for your objection. He said this, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. 
After all, you found out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the full, to the full what temptation means. Here's another way to put it. Think of giant waves beating indestructible granite cliffs, like the cliffs of Dover. Waves crashing into them, one after the other. But guess what? Those cliffs will never move. They'll never budge. They will never break. They will never break down. Those cliffs will experience a beating like no other cliffs. Now think of like the pier at the beachfront. Okay? The storm rolls in, and although it holds up for a while, as we've, we've seen this happen, right? Big waves come through, and sooner or later, it caves in. Which one experiences the full force of the sea? The one that caves or the one that doesn't and couldn't? Do you get it? The reason that Jesus can sympathize and help you in your suffering and in your temptation is because he has experienced it all to a degree that nobody ever has or ever, ever will. A friend of mine said something about this which I think is quite profound. You will never know what it's like to be like Jesus, what it's like to be fully God and fully man, because you are only human. But because Jesus is both fully God and fully man, he does know what it's like to be like you. We will never know what it's like to go from sitting on the throne of the universe to a bloody cross, to bear the full weight of sin and the wrath of God for the very ones that despised and rejected him. We will never experience suffering and temptation like he has. Therefore, he can fully sympathize with us in every experience of suffering and temptation because it's nothing compared to what he has experienced. So in this world where everyone wants sympathy, where we all want to be known, we all want to be understood, there is no one who knows you like Jesus. He understands our frailty. He understands our infirmities. He understands our weaknesses. Ours. Our weaknesses. The ones that you and I brought in here this morning. The one that that made you not get out of one to not get out of bed this morning. He knows the tears you have cried. Psalm 56 8 says that he catches every one of them in a bottle. He remembers all of our sorrows, for he records them. In his book, he understands how the lies of Satan sometimes make perfect sense to you and make perfect sense to me. And how you you and I desperately need help in that moment. Jesus sees, he knows, he feels. This is an absolutely incredible, mind-blowing truth. The God who is transcendent above us in glory is also imminent, near us, with us. Dear brothers, dear sisters in Christ, the Bible is saying to you that Jesus looks upon you and he really can say, he really can say, I know it isn't easy, but don't give up. I am praying for you and I am with you. Hold on to me 
I'll see you through. Now store that glorious truth in your heart. Because guess what? You will need it. You will need it today. You will need it tomorrow, the next, and the next. You will need it. We also see here that Jesus is the high priest who redeems us. He's the high priest who redeems us. This is the greatest reason why there's no one like Jesus. Despite all that came against him, through all his trials and temptations, he never caved to sin. He never once sought relief by giving in. The Old Testament high priest, in fact, every man, that is, every man and woman that has ever lived could never and has never done that. 33 years of no sin for you. Because when the trials and temptations come our way, what do we do? That's when we bail ship, right? We're trying to find something else in our time of need. Something to satisfy that sinful urge. Something to make that pain go away. Someone who will love us. Jesus didn't. It says here, he's the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus is our sinless savior. He resisted so that all who have not resisted might be redeemed through his death and his resurrection. He never sinned so that he could be the final sacrifice for sin. And he did it all for what? The joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12.2. What is that joy? John 17 tells us. He wants to share in the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. He wants to be with the Father again. But not only that. He wants his people to be with him. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? He is a great high priest because he is a perfect high priest. So if all this is true, and it is, what do we do? What do we do with this? When we leave this place, when we, when we go out into the world and face another week, we are once again confronted with the pressures of this life. We are confronted with the attractiveness of sin. When we are tempted to give in, to give up, to turn back, what do we do? We hold fast to our confession. We hold fast to our confession. Look at verse 14 again. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast, hold tight, grip. Grip our confession. What is our confession? It is our hope. Listen to what the author of Hebrews 10.23 says. Um, the author says in Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. This reminds me of the Heidelberg Catechism question one. It goes like this. What is our only hope in life and in death? That we are not our own, but belong, both body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the good news. It's the gospel. It's all of God's promises, everything He said He would do and He has done. And it's found in one person, who is both God and man. It's Jesus. Take hold of Him. 
grip him, hold tight to him, and never let go. Why must we hold fast? Because he is our only hope. He is the only one who goes before the Father for you. He is the only one who fully knows you and understands you. He's the only one who has covered all of your sins with his blood. Only Jesus. So what will help us to hold fast? What will help us to hold fast? By coming to a better understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. And this is why we need theology. We need theology. This is why the elders, I know for a fact, the elders of this church are committed to preaching Christ through, through the whole scriptures. Because what we know to be true about Jesus is a matter of inter- eternal importance. What we know about Jesus is a matter of eternal importance. But you know what? I meet so many people who seem to think otherwise. Think of it like this. If you had a loved one or or you yourself had a life-threatening heart condition. And this heart condition required a very intricate, very difficult surgery. Wouldn't you want to know everything you could about the surgeon? The surgeon that would be working on your loved one or on, on you. Wouldn't you want to know his, his medical credential, credentials? Where did he get them from? Are they legit? What experience does he have? Has he been successful with the surgery, your level of confidence and trust to put your life or the life of your loved one in his hands is directly proportionate to your knowledge of who he is and what he has done. So why are so many Christians this day happy to know so little about Jesus? So I'll say it again. The confidence you and I have to hold fast to Jesus in life and in death will increase as we grow in our understanding of who he is and what he has done. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Christian community. Christian community. Fellowship of brothers and sisters in the faith. The verse that we read a moment ago, Hebrews 10, 23, the very next verses, that's, you know, the one we read about holding fast to our confession of hope, the very next verses say this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of, is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, get together and encourage and challenge one another to hold tight to Jesus. Meet with people one-on-one. Meet with families. Meet in life groups. Meet with Jesus' church on Sunday. How are we encouraged? How are we challenged by one another? with the scriptures, with the word about Christ. Hebrews four twelve to 13 says that the word not only points us to life in Jesus, but it also exposes our terminal heart condition. It's like an x-ray. It's like an MRI for our hearts. It shows us our need of Jesus. So this leads directly to the next thing that we, we are told to do, and that is to draw near to the throne of grace in our need. Draw near to the throne of grace. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All that we've just been told about Jesus should create confidence in us for drawing near in expectation of mercy 
and grace. What we know about Jesus should lead us to experience Jesus. It's, it's not going to do us any good just to, to have an understanding, to have head knowledge of who He is and all that He's done and all that He's provided for us unless we make use of it. We won't persevere in this life by just knowing about Jesus. We must actively put our faith in Jesus. We must believe it. At the beginning of, of, of chapter 4, the author tells us that the Israelites, those who had come out of Egypt, as they were traveling along in the wilderness, they had heard the good news of the gospel, as we have, but they did not enter God's rest because they didn't respond in faith. They didn't respond in faith. So we must draw near to Jesus in the word and in prayer that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our need. Every one of us needs help, right? Every one of us. We don't, we don't like to admit it. We try to hide it, but it's true. We are not God. We have needs, all kinds of needs. We have weaknesses. We have limitations. We have confusion. We have hurt. We have pain. We need help. And help is available to us from the throne of grace. Now, if you're, any, you're anything like me, I think you are. We have trouble with this, right? Drawing near to God in prayer. Drawing near to God in prayer. Do any of you struggle to pray? See, we are looking for help in the midst of this chaotic world, but we are avoiding the very place we need to go to get it. We will turn to anything and everything but prayer. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Now, I don't say this flippantly this morning, but the Bible teaches that there is nothing that comes to us in this life that hasn't first gone through the hands of the sovereign God. He is the good God that works all things for the good of those that He has called. So, could it be, could it be that God allows some of our greatest struggles to remain in our lives so that we would pray. How many of us would pray if we were free from all of our troubles? Many of our struggles are exactly the best thing for us. Maybe the most unloving thing would be for God to remove them from us. Now some of you are facing really difficult things right now and, and my, my heart breaks you. I don't know exactly what you're experiencing, but we all, we all experience valleys in this life. But might it be that the, the thing that you are facing is the best thing for you? Why? Because it makes you turn to Jesus and lean into Him. And He's far better, He's far better than relief from your troubles. And this is true. It's difficult, but it's true. And perhaps the greatest reason we don't draw near is because we have sin and the guilt that comes from that. At the bottom of our hearts, we feel that we don't deserve the help that we need. And that's true. We don't. So what do we often do instead? We knuckle down. We try to handle it on our own. We turn to more sin to numb the pain. We give up. We drown in despair. But this passage is saying that we can draw near in confidence to the throne. We can draw 
near to the throne of grace in? Confidence. Confidence in ourselves? No. Do you remember that story about Jesus and the two men that went to the temple to pray? The Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee comes to God in his own confidence. God, I thank you like I'm, I, that I'm not like that sinner. Here's all the wonderful things that I've done. Can't you see? The tax collector, he comes to God in humility. Looking down, he cries out, he beats his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Whose prayer was heard that, that day? The tax collector knew he didn't deserve God's help. But he cried out to God because of his faith in the character of God. Yes, this morning, every day, we need help. Yet not one of us deserves the help we need. This is not deserved help we're talking about. This is merciful and gracious help. Because we have a great high priest who, whose finished work on the cross has atoned for our sin, has appeased the wrath of God, Every reason why God should reject us, every reason why God should hate us, every reason why God should send us to hell has been removed. God himself has removed it in Jesus, his son. So for all who are in Christ this morning, the throne is not a place of judgment or condemnation. The throne is a place to which we run, which flows with mercy, which flows with grace that we need moment by moment. How do we go to the throne? How do we go? Empty-handed. Hiding nothing. Excusing nothing. Acknowledging our need and trusting in Jesus' heart of mercy for the undeserving. We don't deserve it, but we can have it. And we can have it now, right now, by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you know that this is what the Old Testament was pointing to the whole time? This is what the New Testament is all about. That God planned for a Savior, a Redeemer, a High Priest, a Gracious Helper. This is the hope and joy of Christmas. Jesus, Emmanuel. Jesus, the God who saves, is with us and near us in Jesus Christ. He drew near to us so that we can draw near to him. Before the throne, there, there's safety for the fearful and the anxious. There's comfort and consolation for the sorrowful and mournful. There is forgiveness and cleansing for the sinful. There is help and strength for the struggling. And there is peace for the persecuted. Jesus, the great high priest, the great shepherd, he leads us to green pastures and he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. If he is with us, we shall not want. The last application point that I have here, and it, it, it does, it's not in the text, but it, it's an implication of it. It flows out from it, and that is this. Remember, remember that illustration about the surgeon, right, and the, and the heart condition? Wouldn't you be, be very quick to commend and praise that surgeon to anyone who has the same need? See, we have a great high priest who saves us from sin and death. He gives us eternal life. We have a great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and graciously gives help. Shouldn't we be even more ready to commend him to those who have not yet 
tasted of that mercy and that grace for their need, especially for salvation. So friends, we are ever in need. But you know what? That's just fine. Because Jesus forever lives to intercede for us. There is a throne of grace and a sinless Savior waits there to give you what you need. So let's run to him this morning. Let's run to him every day. Let's keep running to him. And he will get us there. He will bring us all the way home. Edward Shiletto is a minister during the horrors of World War I. He witnessed horrors that many of us will never, will never see, will never understand. And as he was reflecting on the sufferings of the people all around him, the people that he was ministering to in that time, he was reflecting on the, the sufferings and the glory of Jesus. And this is what he wrote. And I end with this. His poem is called Jesus of the Scars. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is the balm, Lord Jesus? By thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are, have no fear. Show us thy scars, we know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou to stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let's go to our God and let's draw near to him in prayer this morning. Our gracious and merciful Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, that you would massage these truths deep down into our hearts. Cause us to love Jesus and to trust him more. That we would all follow his invitation to draw near, to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Make us a humble people, always aware of of our immense need, our great need. And also, Lord, make us a confident people, always rejoicing in the provision that you have made in Jesus. Lord, give us that same kind of heart that he has, that heart of sympathy as our Savior. Give us that same heart of sympathy for all those who are sinful like us. May we be a people that are always coming before your throne of grace and bringing others along. We ask that you would do this by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.